uh, Timothy that his holy word is God-breathed. God's scriptures are God-breathed. They're breathed out by the Holy Spirit, and they're useful for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, for building up the man of God and the woman of God for every good and necessary task. And that's why when we um, read God's word, we stand to give reverence. So as you do uh, turn to uh, Malachi chapter 9, I want us to please stand as we give heed to honor God's word. Nehemiah 9. We'll start reading at verse 32 and read to the end of the chapter. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem significant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all of your people. From the days of the kings of Assyria to this day, however, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions, which you have admonished them. But they in their own uh, kingdom, with your great goodness with which um, you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we are making an, an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, as we study your holy word, we pray that you would help us to understand um, how we are to confess our sin, how we are to see the consequences of this life and the consequences of sin, and how we are, Lord, to endeavor to commit ourselves and vow unto you to serve you and you alone. Help us, we pray, for we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. If you have a written contract, um, if you're going to make any agreement, a legal agreement, a business contract, you need things in writing. If you're going to get a loan, it's going to be really impossible for you to get a loan for a car or get a loan for a house unless you have lots of written agreements. Um, no banker in their right mind would ever give you a loan of that sort without some sort of legal binding signed document. And not just one, but maybe a stack of those documents. 
Now, what about having written agreements in the church that everyone should sign? Today's text seems to be an example where it wasn't something that was commanded by Scripture, but it was something done as, you could say, as an act of devotion that a document was written up and names were placed upon it, and it was sort of a, an agreement between the people and God. And we'll look at that today in today's text. Now, what, where does this come from? What's the motivation of them putting together this, this agreement to devote themselves to God? Now, from the end of Nehemiah 7, all throughout the entirety of Nehemiah 8, this was a thanksgiving period where the people were giving thanks unto God for all of the wonderful mercies that he had given them uh, through the hand of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was sent uh, to them um, by God's mercy to no longer uh, have to serve as the cupbearer for king, or you could say emperor Artaxerxes, who ruled over the Persian Empire, but he went over to help the people to rebuild the wall that was broken down and the gates that were burned with fire. Now remember, this is in a day where if you didn't have walls to protect you and you didn't have gates to protect you, people could come in and pillage you in the middle of the night. And that kind of thing happened. So these people needed the help of Nehemiah and they needed the help of God. And God did help them. We're told that the wall was repaired in 52 days. The surrounding enemies of the, uh, the Jews knew and realized and acknowledged that this was a work of God and had been accomplished by the help of their God and not just by man alone. So what, what do they do? They give thanks to God. They have worship services. They have festivals. They have the Feast of Booths. And in all of these things, there was a reading of an immense amount of Scripture. There was a, 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 a massive amount of Scripture being read during these occasions. Now, when Scripture is read, oftentimes there's a conviction of sin because the Scriptures point out our point our sin out, especially the law. So then there was a confession of sin, a conviction of sin and a confession of sin. Um, most of Nehemiah 9 is a long prayer, and the vast majority of that is a long confession of sin during a worship service. And we, we've studied this prayer for some time, and uh, this is the last sermon on this rather long prayer, and it's a continuation of a, of a confession of sin, but it has a different emphasis here. Again, this was a prayer led by the Levites. As we focus on today's text, the chief thing that we're going to find out from today's text is that God calls you to confess your sin and vow to obey him. God calls you to confess your sin and vow to obey him. Now, we'll look at this in two main points, how to confess your sin to God, and secondly, we'll look at how um, you are to make vows to obey God. So let's look at this first main point, how to confess your sin to God. Now, today's text gives us a lot of useful instruction here. Now, um, again, if you remember, a good way to pray is to always start off with adoration. Adore God for who he is. And that's what he does in this prayer, and starting in verse 32. Uh, now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Now, imagine you're set up to, um, to meet one of the most prestigious leaders in the known world and you're going to go tomorrow. Um, maybe you don't have a lot of modern leaders you respect. Maybe it's a, 
some one of the greatest leaders in all history, maybe you could say, and you get an opportunity, even if he's passed on from this life, just imagine you were going to get a chance to meet up with them. What would it be like? Would there be a lot of anticipation? Would you be a little nervous? Would you um, be careful about how you approach uh, this individual? Well, whoever that might be that you've set up in your mind as being that most prestigious, honorable king or ruler in the whole world, in the history of the world, he doesn't compare to our God. Our God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Um, I have this in your outline. It says that in um, 1 Timothy 6, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So he's not only great and mighty, he's faithful. As it says, he keeps covenant and loving kindness. Now this is a theme that was taught earlier. We, had, we did a whole sermon on God being the, the promise-keeping God and and how he kept his promises made to Abram, who was later, later Abraham, and giving the land of inheritance to Abraham's descendants, and he did that. Now, there are reasons why we are not like God, and one of the reasons is why uh, we don't often keep our promises. Um, there's various reasons. Some of us forget. We made a promise of I'm sorry, but I forgot. Um, some of us have a change of desires, change of affections. Maybe we made a promise initially and then later on we changed our mind. There's something we wanted more instead of that initial uh, thing or person that we promised um, to give uh, obedience unto. And that happens both to our promises to God and to others. But God is not like that. God keeps his promises in keeping his long-awaited promise to the seed of the woman, as mentioned all the way back in Genesis 3.15, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the seed of the woman who came to undo and to, to bruise, or some translations say to crush the head of the serpent. And that is God keeping his promises made at the dawn of creation, fulfilled all the way in the person of Jesus Christ thousands of years later. And that is for the purpose so that he, the Father, would remain just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, according to Romans 3, 26. Now, another thing is that when you go to confess your sin, according to today's text in Nehemiah 9, when you go to confess your sin, acknowledge to God the, uh, God's justice and the consequences of your sin. We see a lot of that here in, t in today's text. There, the, uh, the Levites are acknowledging God's justice and what has happened to them in God disciplining them. Look at verses uh, 32 to 33 again. They're asking God to have compassion on their hardship. But they say this, Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you, O oh God, you are just in all that has come upon us. 
For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Now, I've met people before that are suffering from the consequences of sins. And sometimes it could be consequences of sin that happened many years past, but they're still suffering from the consequences of various sins. And they get angry with God. They get upset with God. They got a, they got a grudge against God for something that's happened to, them or happened to them or that continues to happen to them as a consequence of sin. But notice here, these people were suffering, actually they suffered for hundreds of years under the plight of foreign powers because of the wickedness of their forefathers. Well, they weren't angry with God. They weren't saying, God, why us? Why us? They knew why it was them and they acknowledged that these consequences of sin came upon them because of the sins um, of their uh, forefathers before them and their sin. They acknowledged that um, God is just and that all of this has come upon them and that God has remained faithful. But notice in particular, there's some, there's some particular consequences that these men of Judah mention in verses uh, 36 through 37. Let's look there. It says, Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. If you remember, God promised to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. You could say that's a land of good produce. produces a lot. But all that milk and honey and grain and fruit and wine and all that stuff went to the foreign powers. And it began after the death of Joshua. When the people that didn't know the works of Moses and the works of Joshua and God's mighty deeds... There arose a generation who did what was right in their own eyes, and they kept turning to idols. And during that period of the judges, God set over foreign powers to rule over the people. And then after the period of the judges, there was a time of peace um, for a while. But then after the death of uh, Solomon, the kingdom was split. And, uh, or after, the, the, after Solomon's son began to rule, the kingdom was split. And then later on, all sorts of atrocities happened. God then took Israel captive and then took Judah captive. Um, they became captive under the Assyrians. They became captive under the Babylonians. And then later on, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then now, at this time in history, they were under the, the slavery, you could say, of Persia. Now, they mentioned that we are slaves. Well, they had freedom. They had homes. <coughs> They were living in a uh, not everybody, but a lot of them in Judah there were living in Jerusalem with their new uh, walls that were repaired and their gates that were repaired. But at the same time, they were slaves because they were still paying tribute and still f- sending out some of the best of their produce back to the king uh, Artaxerxes in Persia. And why? Again, it's because of the sins that they had uh, committed. They, de- they turned away from God's law. Now, when you confess your sins to God, acknowledge your particular sins and also the aggravating circumstances. Look at verses uh, 34 through 35. 
I call some of these the aggravating circumstances. Verse 34, For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Now, God gave them a land. He gave them an inheritance. Yet, basically, they spit in God's face, you could say. What's this admonishment? Well, the admonishment was the prophets. God sent many prophets to them to preach to them, to repent and turn from their ways. Many of the prophets they killed. Many they executed and tortured. So they didn't listen to the admonishment of the prophets. Some of them told them that they would even go into captivity if they didn't repent, and they still continued in their hard-hearted ways and then ended up in captivity. That rich land they had was given to them, but they returned that favor with evil deeds. And that's what happened. So maybe you could relate to these Israelites Maybe you could relate to these Jewish people. Uh, actually, this was the this is the people of Judah. You can relate to these folks who confess their sin to God. But when you confess your sin to God, it should be followed up by something else. Notice that it should be followed up by an endeavor after new obedience. And then let's look next at your vows to obey God. Your vows to obey God. Verse thirty-eight. Now, because of all this, because of all what? Because of all of our sin, which we just confessed, because of our sin, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now, it's not the best practice that when you come to church, you confess your sins to God. And as soon as you walk out of the church, you go back into doing the same thing you did before. Um, But notice that these men made a vow, a commitment, and a written agreement before God. But I, I do love the fact here that it was the leadership of the church that led in this example. I think that's important for our day. It should be something that the leadership of the modern church need to vow before God to keep uh, his law and keep themselves if they are to have the blessing of God in the church. But also we'll find out next time in the next sermon, this was not just the leadership, but it was all the people who made this vow. Now today's text gives us this example, uh, I would, this example I would call it almost like a, a covenant renewal of sorts. Now look at the agreement, and well, we will look at the agreement in more detail next week, but verse 10 I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 29, it mentions some of the oath that they took. They took an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses. Now, I want to be careful here, but I I do think if you look at the confession of faith and you look at the Bible, there's a little bit of an overlap between oaths and vows. Sometimes uh, what we might think of as an as in a vow to serve the Lord, is here is it's called an oath. 
what we think of an oath as being a, you take an oath of office or you take an oath before a stand if you're going to give a testimony uh, before a judge, something of that sort. But today it says they took an oath to walk in God's law, which was written in Moses, um, which was given through Moses. This is reminiscent of the church vows that we take when we become members. When you become a member of the church, you believe the gospel, you, you make a profession of faith. I believe this, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God's word. But you also take a vow in that. Now let's look at some of the, uh, the marks of a true Christian versus someone who maybe just talks the talk. There are two things. Faith. Uh, one who has a true faith in Christ, he or she is resting upon Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. Repentance. Repentance is a mark of saving grace, um, repentance unto life, but it includes a few things here. A true sense of his sin, an apprehension of um, the, or spiritual grasp of the mercy of God in Christ, understanding the gospel, but it also involves a grief or hatred of, of sin leading to him to turn from that sin unto God with a full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. Now, this is all after the, the uh, this is all from the Shorter Catechism, but you can look at the footnote there if you want to read it later. This is what we see in today's text. They made a confession. They confessed their sin to God, but also they made an oath, or you could call it a vow, to uphold the ways of the Lord. And to keep the commandments. That's the purpose after new obedience. Um, now, a true Christian is not marked by perfection. If you've never met somebody who believes in perfectionism, it goes like this. Um, I haven't sinned in the last five years. I actually met somebody who said that to me. I couldn't believe it. And then he was a single young man as well. I haven't sinned in the last five years. My eyes got like that big, like saucers. And one of the first questions I asked him, I said, what, you're not married, right? No. I said, have you ever, you haven't ever uh, looked at an attractive lady or anything like that? Anyway, I, I forgot where the rest of the argument went, but that, that was an astonishing uh, thing to me. A true believer is never made perfect in this life. However, when we, those who are in Christ, when we die, it says that we become spirits made perfect. We shall become perfect. When we, when we die and go to be with the Lord, we'll be made perfect in holiness as we wait for the resurrection of our bodies. So a true believer is not marked by a perfection, because that's an impossibility. A true believer is made evident by a repentant heart. So you're not perfect, but you repent of sin. If someone confronts you with sin, you don't get defensive and angry, but you say, I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? When God convicts you of sin, you say, God, forgive me, rather than being hardened in the sin. So a true believer is one who is marked by sorrow for sin, and you could say a hatred for sin, and endeavors to turn from it and towards the ways of Christ now, should we have a written covenant or agreement in this church? Now, I'm going to say that this written agreement in Nehemiah at the end of chapter 9 is something 
that was not commanded necessarily. It was something that was done as a voluntary act of worship. It wasn't something that God said, for you who believe in me, you must make a written testimony of and a, a written vow of sorts. Now, um, there's a movie that Marianne and I have watched. I think we've seen it twice, or maybe more than twice. But it was called The um, Courageous, and it was about a group of police officers and, and dads, Christian dads. And um, these men were uh, making a, a commitment, a vow before God and their families to uphold the ways of the Lord and be faithful Christian dads and husbands and leaders. And written, they had written out this statement, and they had a small ceremony in some guy's yard, and they signed the agreement, and then they put it on the wall as a reminder. This is our vow that we have made to be Christian dads, Christian husbands, um, Christian men. Uh, I do believe if you're looking for a written agreement of sorts, something that you would like to put on the wall, um, I think we already have something. If you are a communicant member of this church, you have taken a vow already. And it's found in our book of church order. And I want us to look at it together. Um, I've changed it up a little bit. Normally the way these vows are written these are vows written in such a way where the, the minister will ask the, the person, do you believe this? Do you believe that? And you answer yes. Hopefully you answer the yes if you want to become a member. Um, but I changed it up as something that maybe you could own it for yourself. It's been modified slightly. Here's that first one. I believe the Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, to be the Word of God, and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation. Two, I believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. I confess that because of my sinfulness, I abhor and humble myself before God, that I repent of my sin, and that I trust uh, for salvation not in myself, but in Jesus Christ alone. I acknowledge Jesus Christ as my sovereign Lord, and promise that in reliance on the grace of God, I will serve him with all that is within me, forsake the world. Resist the devil, put to death my sinful deeds and desires, and lead a godly life. That should be a period rather than a question mark. I promise uh, to participate faithfully in my church's worship and service, to submit in the Lord to its government, and to heed its discipline, even in, in case I should ever be found delinquent in doctrine or life. Again, those are things that you, if you are a member of this church and you take the Lord's Supper as a communicant member, you've made these vows. I guess you could put it on, a, on the wall and put it in a frame and go back and read them and study them and say, this is my covenant with the Lord. This is my agreement with the Lord. Again, there in history, people did this sort of thing as acts of devotion. You did this before God and many witnesses, if you're a member here. Now, 
Jonathan Edwards made his resolutions. This is a lot shorter than Jonathan Edwards' resolutions and a lot less detailed than Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. But it's still good, isn't it? So according to Holy Scripture, God calls you to confess your sin and also to vow to obey him. And these vows that you've taken um, mark that kind of vow, doesn't it? So how to confess your sin? First, do so by praising God. For he is the God of gods, the great and the mighty and the awesome God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone possesses immortality. And he alone uh, is the one to whom belongs all honor and eternal dominion. Don't blame God for your hardships. Acknowledge the hardships that you're suffering is because of sin. But ask God for his help to help you bear through it with faith. That even if you suffer hardships for sin, that God would use it even now for your sanctification and growth and grace. And your vows to obey God. Now, as this church hopefully would grow, the first step should be that the leaders of the church take seriously their vows to obey and seek the Lord earnestly. It began with the leadership and then the people. Uh, Those in Judah made a written agreement, an oath to walk in God's ways um, through the law given to Moses. Now, if God has truly saved you, he doesn't want you to live any way that you want. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You're not saved to live like the devil, but you're saved to follow that narrow path like we read before from John 14. We can't do so perfectly, but our lives should be characterized as one of repentance over sin, that we should have an endeavor, a serious effort after new obedience. Now, if you want, again, a written vow to put on the wall, maybe maybe you can snip some of today's sermon notes and... Or maybe you could retype it and make it look a little bit neater in mind. And you could put it in maybe in calligraphy or something and put it on the wall. Go back and read it. If you're not a member and this is something that you desire, talk to uh, myself or one of the session meeting, uh, session members, um, Dr. Joe or Dr. Barnum. Let's pray together. We ask, O Father, that you would forgive us of our many sins. For you are the great God, the awesome God, the mighty God, the King of glory, the true and holy one. And we have responded so often with your holiness and goodness uh, in wicked ways. And we pray that you would forgive us of our sins. And we pray that you would help us to bear under the consequences of, of, of our sins that we would acknowledge even that you are using these things for our growth and grace. Help us, we pray, to be patient under your pruning hand as you cut away those sins from our lives. Help us to grow in grace in these things. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to love you, to love each other, to turn from our sins. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember the vows that we have made in church membership, that we have vowed that you are our sovereign Lord and that we rely not on ourselves but in Christ alone for our salvation. Help us, we pray, to forsake all that, was, that is uh, hindering. 
Help us to forsake the world. Help us to resist the devil. Help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit and by your word, to put to death the deeds of our, our flesh and our desires. And help us, we pray, to lead a godly life that we would shine forth in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Forgive us of our many sins, and Lord, help us, we pray, to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and to live for him and through him. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, our hymn of dedication, let's stand and sing 557. Great King of Nations, hear our prayer. Let's turn to 557.